Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, recently named one of Rolling Stone's top 50 comedians of all time, and about to embark on the Fresh Off the Bloat comedy tour. Hello, Margaret Cho. Wait, is that is that your microphone? What the heck? I tried this one. Oh, oh there it goes. There we go. Now are. it's on. Right. Hi. Hello. You look impeccable, as always. Uh, thank you. When did you get your style dialed? Um, you know, I think that it. I go through phases, um, and I wish that I uh, had paid more attention. I, I think when I was in the, um, in, in the 80s, I was real goth, so I was like in that sort of like, I wanted to be like Susie and the Banshees and sure, who didn't? Susie Sue. Right. You know, or, or Robert Smith from The Cure, and you, you know, uh, so that they, they, that's when you when you you're goth that sort of sets you up for good time, fashion wise. But the '90s, um, now I'm trying to go back and to do a bit of '90s fashion because now I think, oh, the '90s is it. What was so great? I'm told it's coming back. I'm so old that I can't tell. I go out and I see young people, and I'm like, yeah, they're just wearing clothes. People are like, no, dude, they're like, like I'm like a, I'm like a, an old hippie who doesn't realize kids are wearing like bell bottoms. I know, ironically, ironically, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that um, it. What was great about '90s fashion is that it, it really was just like let's just wear what's at the thrift store, mm-hmm. not realizing it was vintage. <laughs> I had a girlfriend who was kind enough to make me in school a pair of plaid pants mm. that I we purposely made like four inches too long so mm-hmm. that I could grind off the back of them. Yes. While, and this was the woman who was also sleeping with me at the time and she was completely unbored with that plan. <laughs> That's great. Well, the to grind them off is a smart idea. Um, or you could have just worn platforms. Although in the '90s, guys did not wear platforms like they did in the '70s. No, that would have been more of your D-light leaning crew. Yeah, the, there was a there was like a D-light sort of crowd, and then yeah. there was the uh, grunge crowd. Yeah, I was more in like I guess in retrospect more of like a blind melon kind of scene. I see. Yeah, I understand. Not a, not a lot of platforms going on there. No, but a lot of B uh, imagery. They they were really ahead of their time with the bee stuff because now mm-hmm. we're trying to save the honeybee. That's right. I mean, if we, only we had heated Blind Melon's lesson, you, you know, know, at the time. Unfortunately, um, and then that guy died. So that <laughs> also, also unfortunate. We didn't, you know, if we maybe if he was still around, we would have we would have kn- known to save the honeybee earlier. Yeah, if only we had realized he also had a, a potentially fatal heroin issue yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I notice in the press release for your new tour, you are newly sober. Sort of, yeah, I guess. Um, it well, it's sort of like this thing where I'm. I don't know if I'm so much sober as I'm not dying. Okay, so if I may pry, if I may pry a little bit, yeah. how were you dying? Well, I was just doing a lot of drugs and drinking a lot. Okay, which so is say, crazy. Say like a year or two. I thought you had quit previously. I had um, before. I'd been sober, or I not sober, but I had not been drinking or using drugs for a long time. 
And then I kind of stopped doing that. I don't know. It's like weird because it's not like when you're um, stopping drinking and drugs and then you start again. There's not the fanfare of like when you stop. When you stop, there's a clear delineation. It's like, I'm stopped. Mm -hmm. And then when you start again, it's like, oh, I'm just like everybody else. Like everybody drinks and, Mm -hmm. you know, I was like, oh, well, pot is sort of legal, so I'm going to do that. And then, but if it could stay at pot, it would be good. Unfortunately, I have to take everything to a stupid amount of like craziness. So. so say like a year or two ago, what's a what's a big night for Margaret Cho? A big night? Well, I I think a big night would probably be um, a big morning. Uh, I, I was sort of a morning drinker and user. Oh, so interesting. Just because at night I usually worked. Right. So if you're like doing shows at night, then you, you know, you're, you're big time to like kind of relax and, you know, uh, Take a load off or whatever. Crack open a cold one. Yeah, take the edge off. Whatever yeah, analogy. Yeah, it would be yeah. the morning. <laughs> it would be like that kind of that. So the morning. Wait, not not just after the show. You after would, the show, you would sort sleep, of. You would sleep and then do the drugs. Yeah, I would kind of sleep. I would do the show. I would kind of sleep, and then I would do drugs. Or I would just. I never really after in the last like twenty years or whatever. I didn't sleep a lot. So. But only for the past two decades before that. You, you, you banked a lot of rest before that? I think so, you know. Um, but, yeah, the uh, the weirdness of it. And the thing is, is that, it, you know, when you're at a level of, like, where you can spend a lot of money on mm. that stuff, it can yes. be pretty crazy. That's what many people have said and what my experience was as well. Is, is the coke always ran out for mm-hmm. me because mm-hmm. the money always ran out. Yeah. And I never did cocaine because I uh, – had a deviated septum Mm -hmm. so i'm more of the uh, slow jam variety i like a good opiate i love to drink i like smacking it up i love i love i've never had um heroin although i've had every other iteration of opiate around that including weird ones like kratom which is really weird okay tell me about that it's a drug that's like um it you can buy it it's actually legal Mm-hmm. And it's like you can buy, but you, you you they sell it at head shops and stuff. It's like bath salts or um, you know uh, spice. Yes, uh, it's cl- clearly closer to spice than bath salts, but it's um, this strange. It's a relative of the coffee plant, and it's a very strange drug. And you would have to do a like uh, an insane amount of it to feel anything. So. I, I was doing, I would buy big potting soil style bags of it and I would go through all, uh, and it, it was a way to stave off um, opiate sickness. You get dope sick if you don't have something. And so I would try to like get off of opiates by doing Kratom, which is a whole nother drug to itself. How did you come to realize that a fertilizer bag's worth of, of spice would do that? <laughs> it's it, you know, it's a, it's a gradual process. It's a learning. <laughs> so it's go, every it's every day's a learning well, experience. I'm so I'm pretty crafty. Like I can go to um, a potting or uh, any kind of just a, a an arboretum or a nurse or a pet like not a pet nursery, a plant nursery, and mm-hmm. I could find a drug that I could do from bulbs. I can go to any uh, gardening store yeah. and get super wasted off of anything they have. In high school, you were the person who actually knew how to get fucked up with banana peels? Yeah. Well, 
that you need you need to like it, it it's it's that's a whole thing of like you have to heat them up in the the oven for it, it's sort of like um when you uh what do they call it carbolizing the marijuana you have to like toast it for like 140 degrees in the oven mm-hmm. for about half an hour before you can actually ignite the sort of psychoactive material yeah you can't really just bake it the whole thing yeah man the trappings of uh i i I don't really do drugs anymore and it's a shame because i I almost miss the trappings of drugs more than the drugs themselves i miss the camaraderie of drugs and like copying and like getting drugs and the secrecy of like you're having like this social interaction or you're at a party or whatever and then there's the thing going on underneath where they're whether that is like this sort of illegal trade or the acquisition of it, I think that's what I like about it the most. Or being inventive enough to like create making your own opium. Yeah, I, I think it was Artie Lang who said the best part of doing coke is buying coke. It's yeah, because it sort of it it ticks off your dopamine receptors, and then you get like this um, charge from it, which I think yeah. is incredible. Yeah, but there's more to life than that. I think so. Well, you know, unfortunately, you can't really do it. You know, you can't. You'll die. Mm-hmm. And everybody that I like enjoyed and and did drugs with it, everybody died so oh, it's kind of like well yeah, the party's over why am i still alive you know i don't want to do this then and then like um when actually when prince died it was a really weird wake up call like oh oh no like this can actually kill you were and, you friendly with him no no um but i always thought that i i i always thought like Oh, there's something that I really loved about his, uh, of course, his music and his presence and and this idea of who he was. And I don't know him. I know I know Wendy and Lisa, but I, I I never met Prince. But I was like, thought of him as sort of this very healthy kind of person. You know that that he never did drugs or you never thought that he did or yeah. something. And then. Because he didn't fit the profile of what we sort of thought of as like drug addicts or people who had problems that way. Yeah, the guy that we all imagined him to be was a guy who for sure would do a bump or have a glass of wine or whatever, but would never let it get out of control. He would always know how to do the right amount and when to call it a night. Yeah. And it was because he he created an amazing persona, but behind it he was an actual human being. Yeah, and that's, I think, a a really crazy thing because then then you saw all of the thing, like all of his life sort of unraveling and how – um, you know, I just didn't want to die like that. You know, having sort of this wall of privacy that you built up, and then when you're dead, you, you're not there to hold up that wall anymore. Right. And what do you do? Like, I, I thought, well, if I died, then everybody's going to find out, you know, about all this stuff, and I would feel so bad about it. So let me ask you, I don't know if it was a year or two ago now, you had the show that didn't go well in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Were, were drugs or alcohol a factor in that? Yeah, but it was also actually like... And I was trying to do something that didn't um, also the audience didn't like. So when you take a combination of (laughs) drinking, using drugs, and then you put on top of it, I'm going to do these jokes that are really going to piss you off. (laughs) It's like you're sort of – you have to – get rid of one of those things you can't like you, you can't do all because I was trying to do something in my comedy that people get offended about you know I was talking about sexual abuse and rape which I think is uh, important to talk about as a comedian and then uh, but that upsets people and that that show in particular this lady jumped up and she's like you can't talk about rape on Easter 
And I'm like, yes, I can talk about rape on Easter because Jesus was a rape baby. Now, oh, <laughs> now I'm I'm from New Jersey, so I can People, put myself pretty easily. In. Yeah, they got real upset. Yeah. Well, you have a weird sort of fame, as I'm sure you're well aware, where there's people who are going to come see you who are totally current on what you've been doing mm-hmm. all this time. And then there's going to be people who are like, oh, that girl used to be on TV. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of those people are not ready for the Jesus was a rape baby joke. Which, you know, I think everybody should be ready for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In a perfect world, Margaret Joe, but ours is a far from perfect world. It's far. But it's it's also like, you know, if you're going to go and do material like that, you need to have all your wits about you. Yes. And so that was like my problem is like I got to either get rid of drinking and doing drugs or I have to um, really uh, make my material so um, acceptable to sort of push it forward and, you know, shove it down their throat. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's hard. Yeah, Right, right, right. You either have to have the crowd pleasers and then you can go up there totally relaxed and and just just bang it out. Yeah. Or because I've talked about this a bunch of times on the other radio show that you've been on the Jason Ellis show here on Sirius XM um, that – it's true that anything is fair game for comedy, Mm -hmm. but the further out on a limb you go, the surer you have to be that the way that you're tackling the thing and the way that you're executing it is fucking spot on. There's a level of mastery that goes along with doing material that is um, out there. And you can't be out there if your Mm -hmm. material is out there. You have to be very focused and, um, you know, that's... I I sort of think about Louis C.K. that way. Louis never ever really drank or he's not like that you know he's not a kind of guy that lets things get away from him like my friend Mitch Hedberg who uh his uh, you know of course he was a genius but the the structure of what he did was so simple in the in the way that he could be anywhere mentally and still come forth as this genius like you still saw this genius coming through but he did it in a way that he could like be as fucked up as he could mm-hmm. and then, you know, performed it. Um, right. There, but there's a couple of guys that really test the boundaries of what's possible. That I would say Mitch is one and then a, a Doug Stanhope, who's another friend yeah. of ours. Stephen Wright could probably do a bunch of uh, Kratom. Yeah. He and was, still, and he still pull was, that off. Yeah, he was very, he could, he could do it because they, they, were, they were like these small, like, almost like a haiku. Yes. But instead of like three lines, it's like two lines, and it was perfect. Is this economical mm-hmm. wisdom that you don't have to expend a lot of energy? I think. Do you are you the kind of comic who writes a lot on stage? Yeah, and then also I think of things, and I go, "Oh, that would probably be a good idea," or something. Something is uh, sparked, and and I go, "Okay, well, I'll I'll, I'll refer back to that. That's going to make sense." So let me ask you, so. Um, I, I'm I'm around the comedy store a bit, and I've seen you, you know, working there a, a, mm-hmm. a bunch. As we've just said, if you're going to do really edgy shit, you really got to be nailing it. Well, if you're working through new material that's talking about, you know, drug abuse or self harm or or whatever, and the joke isn't worked out yet, don't you run the risk, or doesn't it happen that sometimes you do ten or fifteen minutes at the comedy store that's just dark and unfunny? Oh yeah. All the time. Sweet. Come All on, the time. Come on down. Plenty of great tickets available. Yeah. You have ha- you have to have that place. Oh, the worst place to do that, actually, is the original room because they used to kill people in that room. The Ciro's, which was the comedy store, was built over Ciro's. Ciro's was a uh, mob hangout in the 50s. 
And so they would kill people in the original room. So the walls are soundproof. So that was good when they were, you know, killing guys in that room. So nobody would hear the screams. But it's terrible if you're doing comedy in that room because the the laughter gets absorbed in the walls. So no matter what you do, you're always bombing. Now, theoretically, they could take that out. They could take that out, but I think it just adds to the sort of a, the difficulty of doing a show at the comedy I'm, store. I've, I've been in that room. I'm not aware of that. Is it really that sterile? It's very uh, sterile from um, the stage point. Uh, I think from to hear uh, from the stage, you cannot hear people laughing. When you're in the audience, it doesn't make a difference. You you so- It sounds fine, but when you're a comedian performing, you're like, I'm bombing. Oh, okay. Everybody in that room thinks... I'm bombing. Everybody oh, thinks. Okay. Everybody, See, I was on that stage one time. I thought I sucked. Turns out I couldn't just. I just, just couldn't hear, hear all the laughs. You just can't hear. No, I'm kidding. I bomb pretty hard. No, but it's it's also you can't hear. Yeah. So that's part of it, and and also just navigating a place where you can't hear people laughing and still going through with a set. It's like that's an, a level of expertise on its own. So, you know, we all bomb at the comedy store. Okay, and you're just comfortable with that. And I yeah, mean, do you have fine. your little thing? Your the two minutes you do at the end, you're like, oh, I'll throw, I'll throw him a bone and give him some guaranteed laughs, or do you just keep it dark and see you later, everybody? I think it just depends. I think that you know, ultimately, you have to figure out what you're trying to do on stage. Like, you have to get to. It's more important to serve the master of the joke than it is to serve the audience. And then there's a balance in there, you know. But it's hard. It's always hard. Um, your, your dad wrote or writes Korean joke books? Yes. Can you give me like a sample? What are we talking about? Uh, I know it's, you have to translate it. Well, it's like all about like Korean, his like stories about growing up and like kind of my family, like my, um, my father's father, they lived on an orphanage and they didn't, they were really poor and this is during the Korean war and they, um, had, uh, to dig their own outhouse. And so they were digging the outhouse and they found a body of a, a soldier. It was a Korean soldier who had deserted. So they had this skeleton <laughs> that they had to just kind of deal with. So they put the skeleton on the inside of the outhouse. They hung the skeleton up with the uniform and everything just up um, in, in the wall. And uh, that would be an example of Korean comedy. <laughs> Is the- the, uh, okay, so that uh, kind of answers my question, yeah. which is, do you see what you do as like a, because uh, that's not what I was expecting you to say, <laughs> as uh, that you are, you know, um, uh, the apple doesn't far fall from the tree, or do you see what you do as being an, like a rejection of the sensibility that... Oh, I think it's exactly what my father is intending to do. Like, just, he, he loves to upset people, and that's <laughs> what I do too. I love to upset people, and I think it's really fun to have that excitement about it, you know, and that's sort of like a family tradition. Um, in the uh, the press for your upcoming tour, Fresh Off the Bloat, you say the Koreans are the most savage of all Asians. That's true. That's true. It, it, it I'm, I think it probably is true, and mm-hmm. they're not without competition. But my wife is Japanese, so I'm mm-hmm. kind of allowed to tread in these, yes. these waters. Yes. Yeah, uh, so what is up with that? Um, I think that... It's just a harsh culture. And, it, you know, in, in Korea, we have the highest level of eating disorders. We have the highest rate of plastic surgery. Yes, that's off the charts, yeah. It's crazy. And so that kind of uh, weird crit- critical side, of their, like trolling is on another level. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. People are like, 
stalked. If if there's like a rumor about you, if you're a celebrity, celebrity or whatever, you are stalked until you want to kill yourself. I mean, this is like suicide is very common in Korea too. So we're and that's we're, an Asian thing, I think. But a, yeah, Asians. I mean, I think. Well, like the, the Japanese, they have like their own suicide forest, and they're very shishi about it. It's they, under yeah, it's they, under Mount Fuji. It's it's like a very it's a destination suicide place. They've got the coolest suicides. They have the coolest suicides with the harakiri and all that kind of stuff. It's classic. You, you know that's amazing. But <laughs> Koreans, we just everybody turns on their hibachi inside. That's how it, they all die in uh-huh. Korea. Yeah, it's a very um very blunt. Matter of factly blunt culture. I used to know a very, very attractive um, uh, Korean lady who was married to a guy who was okay looking, mm-hmm. and she would was happy to tell you that he was just barely good looking enough for her to marry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's had he been a little bit uglier, this would not have worked. And he was the nicest, happiest guy in in yeah, the world, but, but just barely made the cut. Yeah, and and I mean, I guess from her perspective, he did make the cut. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so he should be problem? glad. Yeah. Um. Uh, real quick in the couple minutes I have left with you, I'm a sucker for really bad 80s stuff, and I mm-hmm. also weirdly have the entertainment taste of a gay man, and mm-hmm. I was pleased to learn that you had at least a small role on a spinoff of The Golden Girls. I did. I, um, see, I'm, I feel like a kind of an 80s expert. Like I, yeah. I, I, I DVR Golden Girls to this day. Oh, that's great. And Well, it's a lot of things, and I, I did not realize there was a spinoff called Golden Palace. Golden Palace was a show that they did without uh, B. Arthur. Right. So B. Arthur, they had Mark Cherry and all of these guys, they had made a deal, and Jim Jim Valley, they had all made a deal to, they were all the Golden Girls writers. They were like, okay, we're going to do the spinoff. Um, it had to do with, like, they all sort of had reached their ceiling point, like, money-wise for the show for Golden Girls. Mm-hmm. And um, so they wanted to do this whole new show where they would, not have to pay them all the money that they had for Golden Girls. They thought everybody was going to come over, but B. Arthur did not. That's not surprising to me based on the things I've heard about her since then. She was immovable. She wasn't going to do it. And she hated all the other girls, too. You want to hear a great B. Arthur story? Maybe you don't know this. Um, Supposedly, she used to drive to and from the set with an open bottle of vodka in her car. Mm. And they, at one point, spoke to her and said, you can't. You can't do this. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to see you, and it's going to be a real thing. Yeah. So the next day, she showed up to work with tinted windows. <laughs> that, that's so great. Yeah. So well, it's not surprising to me that she did not take part in Golden yeah. Palace. She didn't take part in it, but it was an odd show. It was um, it it it, it was the the the, uh, the remaining three, and then uh, um, Don Cheadle. Yeah. Um, which was very weird, and then also Cheech Marin. Also weird. Super um, weird. And then, uh, so they were all in this hotel, and they were, like, running this business at a hotel. And it was basically Golden Girls, but it was without B. Arthur in a hotel. And uh, and Jack Black made an appearance at one point? He, uh, he, well, he was actually on my show, All-American Girl. Mm-hmm. He was on with uh, David Cross. Um, I, I uh, remember that he was on, he was in a band, um, and that we were going to see him play in his... In his band, um, and they actually performed uh, all the, the all this music on the show too, which was so exciting to see. But it's, it was not Tenacious D, of course, but just Jack. Oh, it wasn't. Oh, I assume that's what you. I thought that was, a, and that band turned out to be. No, no, no. That was a. It was a different band, but uh, of course, I love I love Tenacious D as well. That's fun. I mean, how do you reflect on your early like? I'm, I'm assuming if you had a, if if they were going to make Golden Palace now, you probably would choose to not take part in that. 
I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I would have just because I love Golden Girls, you okay. know, like, so that I love being around all those ladies and, um, you know, that in itself was exciting. Sure. But, um, yeah, I would. Um, I would. You have a television project that you wrote? Yes, called, uh, it's called Highland. That has been picked up for a pilot by the TNT Network. Yes. And it looking at the capsule description, it seems like some of this might be somewhat autobiographical. Yes, yes. It's about it well, it's about the medical marijuana boom and a Korean family who are caught up in this thing that it's a green rush here in California. It's mm-hmm. pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. And they get very really, really rich. And I play a girl who's uh not a pothead, but she's a serious drug addict who gets out of rehab and is given to the care of her family, and she has to work in this pot dispensary and not get high. But that's sort of like a jumping-off point to all, all sorts of other things. But it's a new kind of Asian-American family, so I'm excited to bring that family to television. I'm excited to see that family on television because yeah. its time has certainly come. You're also co-starring in a new Will Smith movie that is – I watched the trailer. It's cool. It's it's wild. Yeah, it's cool. It's called, it's uh, called Bright. It's called Bright. Um, I just saw some of it the other day when I was working. I was working with David Ayer, the director, and we um, we didn't see any of the special effects when we were making the film. So right. we, of course, you you are making a totally different film. Like in my mind, we were making this very gritty, very uh, cop drama in the you know downtown. Like we were making this very very intense cop drama, and then. Now I'm like seeing, I'm like, oh, that's what that was, you know, because we had all these sort of like markers and these silver balls that they were using in filming and we didn't really know what that meant. I would have thought they would have given you some basic explanation that that's that's a fairy over there. You didn't get a whole lot of that? I didn't have a sense (laughs) of what was (laughs) happening. I just, I just knew that there was an orc in it who was Joel Edgerton. I, I, he just looked like an orc to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I never saw him out of makeup. He was just an orc. You didn't know who he was, though. I did know who he was, but I couldn't believe that it was him uh-huh. because he was in an orc makeup. So I was like, "That's that dude is not Joel Edgerton, but they, everybody said that he was. Will well, Smith said that he was. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it, and from the, uh, the sounds of things, you are, too. Yes. Sounds like we'll, we'll both have some exciting discoveries. It's going to be cool. But first, you have your comedy tour, Fresh Off the Bloat, and people can get tickets for that at margaretshow.com. Correct, yes. And, of course, they can follow you on all social media at Margaret Show. Thank you so much. Thank you. We are back on The Tully Show with, I believe, our first ever Oscar nominee. He is the director of the new motion picture, England is Mine, about a pre-fame Morrissey. Hello and welcome, Mark Gill. Hi. Thank you for uh, for coming by. Very nice to see you. It's very nice to meet an Oscar nominee. I'm curious about the process by which one becomes an Oscar nominee. Do you need to be in a bit of a shoot like um, have a bit of a spotlight and momentum behind you in the first place. I feel like if I were to make a short film on my computer at home and to make a really great short film and then post it on YouTube or you know Vimeo or whatever, there is absolutely zero chance that I would be nominated for an Oscar. Do you need to sort of already be in a class of filmmakers to be considered in the first place? You certainly have to get your film out there and be seen. And there is a very strict... Um, entry process for Oscar nominated short films and there's a there's a raft of qualifying festivals and you have to win one. Oh, I see. So um we were lucky enough to win in St. Louis 
in the US and which made us Oscar eligible and then you submit with every other Oscar eligible film is about usually about 150 and then they narrow it down to around 10 they shortlist 10 and from the 10 they they nominate five do you know that you're on the shortlist yeah which is great but then you think what happens if you don't get in you've come you know you've come so close to getting an oscar nomination where we also got a bafta nomination but you don't know that you've been shortlisted you just know if you're not Mm -hmm. and where did you come from before that because uh i'm guessing i know martin freeman was in the short film that Mm -hmm. you made people listening to this would probably know him from the english version of the office Mm -hmm. so uh, where did you come from you obviously weren't a nobody to be working with him no i was I was. What it was is um, we wrote the script, I wrote the script, and we were just so confident in it um, that we sent it to Kevin Spacey, who's the creative director of the Old Vic Theatre in London, mm-hmm. and um, just out of sheer ignorance, because nobody told us we couldn't do it. So we did, we wrote a very nice letter, sent it off, and it, they responded. Kevin had read the script, said he really liked it, but it was just too busy. and But he wanted to help get some good talent involved, and he recommended Martin and Tom Hollander people would know from Pirates of the Caribbean or In the Loop. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both agreed to do it for no money. That's nice of them. Yeah. Why, why would an actor do something like that? Well, what I've learned is great actors want to work on great scripts. So um, they both really love the script. And this was Martin pre-Sherlock and pre-Hobbit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he was looking for something different to do. And they both... Incredibly generous with their time and incredibly generous with me. It was essentially my first film outside of film school. So, um, yeah, shot it in three days in Manchester. And then we just started getting it out there. And it didn't hurt that during that process of getting it out there, Martin then became incredibly well-known right. Sherlock. Right, of course. Which elevated our film and more people wanted to see it. So you're shooting in Manchester. I'm not an expert on English accents, but I'm guessing that you are from the north as well? That's correct, yeah. And you have been able so far then to, because I think most people could probably guess if they don't know that there is like so much of the cultural life of England revolves around London. I happen to have read this morning that to understand the, uh, the the role that London plays in like English society, for something comparable to exist in the US, there would need to be a city with 43 million people with the combined economies of Texas and California. So it's a big deal. Yeah, it's like going to another country. And and Mars sees so much of what his persona and meaning and career has been about is, um, and Oasis as well, and a lot of other bands that aren't from London, the Beatles, is it, well, I guess less so in terms of an identity thing, the Beatles is identifying who you are and the people you come from as being separate and distinct mm. from London culture and maybe perhaps looked down on by London culture. I gather that, do you agree or disagree with any well, of that? I don't think London looks down on us anymore. Um, I think you 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 have to fight a little harder. There is no film industry in Manchester. There's a big TV industry now because um, okay. Media City exploded about I don't know, five, six years ago and BBC moved a lot of things up north. Um, but yeah, I think historically people from the north have had to try a little bit harder. Um, I don't think it's the same anymore. But it, you know, yeah, it is London-centric. It is. Um, but you just, I don't know, you just get get on with it. Manchester was the original punk city, even though, you know, the Sex Pistols came from London. Punk actually exploded in Manchester. And that ethos, I still think, remains very much a part of, you know, the artistic community there. And we were very much tapped into it, in making the short film with our own money and just going ahead and doing it without any permission. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't speak to one agent to get the actors. We just 
contacting them directly. That's great. You're yeah, able to pull so, that off. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's 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 a really sort of defiant way to do things. And in in some ways, inspired me personally was inspired by people like Morrissey. Who just those sorts of music, the music and his attitude was don't you know if you've got something to shout about, shout about it. Go ahead and do it. And uh, and we did. So, I take it you are a very big Morrissey fan. I'm a very big Smiths fan. Um, I, I mean, I like Morris's solo career. There's moments of it which I think are incredibly magical. But for me, growing up on the same streets as Morrissey in Manchester, um, literally half a mile from where he lived, um, yeah, the Smiths were the, the most important, probably cultural event of my life until I saw Blade Runner, maybe. Um, so yeah, those two things happened within three or four years of each other. So, so you were in on the ground floor then? Yes. Well, slightly later, mm-hmm. um, maybe. Around the time the Queen is Dead came out, which okay, was eighty six. So, so, but they're still they're still active at that. Yeah, point. still active. I never got to see them because my dad. I was too young to go into town, and my dad wouldn't let me go. Manchester was an incredibly rough city mm-hmm. for a young grammar school educated boy to go into the centre of Manchester. So, um, yeah, I got in quite early with them, um, and then they split up before I got a chance to see them. So, right. Yeah. The next album they didn't even tour on. Yeah. Absolutely. So we, um, for me, it, yeah, it was a real love at first sight affair with them and uh, you know I did follow Morris's career for for some time but then my, you know, my own life was changing and um, but it's the Smiths that has always stayed with me yeah there is something about Morrissey and I love that he addresses it in the music is that <clears throat> he was very aware of the fact that there's a phase that many thoughtful adolescents will go through that's a very Morrissey sort of phase mm-hmm. but he was um, he was going to live in that phase for the rest of his life. I always think of the, the Smith song Rubber Ring really explicitly says there will be a time when you will actually have friends and have boyfriends and girlfriends and then you'll yeah. move on with your life and you won't need me anymore. Mm-hmm. Just think of me kindly at that point yeah. because I'm still going to be this miserable piece of shit over here, you know? <laughs> so you have, let's face it, as much capital as you might ever have again coming off of an Oscar-nominated short and you decide to make a Morrissey movie. Mm. Why? Um... I mean, I've touched upon it already. It was, I mean, it's, it's why I went to film school. I went to film school. I was a musician before I did, I mean, I was a musician because of the Smiths. I bought a guitar and was lucky enough to have a few record deals and tour mm-hmm. and do TV and all the festivals. Um, and well, you were in a band? Yeah. What band? Uh, you wouldn't have heard of them. The only one you may have heard of was a band called Monaco, which was a Peter Hook out of New Order. New Order, sure, yeah. Project. Okay. I, I played guitar for Hooky. Okay, cool. Which was bizarre for me a young kid from suddenly in a band with hooky um he's sort of like a lead bassist yeah i sort of i mix between the guitar and the bass mm-hmm. yeah and um once i'd finished I, I just got to a stage where i thought you know i've been doing this since i was 16 and i want to change and yeah I, I was always into photography and i started making super eight films on tours and i would never had a job a proper job as my dad would say and so i just sold all my guitars to go to film school because i had this idea even back then, that there was, a, I thought there was a film to be made about Morrissey in some way. Never about the Smiths, always about him, pre-Smiths. Uh, and so I st- okay, well, let me ask you about that. So you never wanted to make a Smiths movie because obviously it would be an issue to get. One of the great things about making a pre-fame movie about a musician is that you don't need to clear the mm-hmm. music legally. So that was not that, that. That's even if you had access to the Smiths recordings, and were you would have preferred to make this movie? Yeah. Okay. Always, I just, I just, what, I mean, what is there to say about you know, the Smith? It's all there in the records, right? In all and, the books, yeah. Right. And I just yeah. don't like those biopics where you think you're trying to capture 
that moment of creative gold on screen. You can't do it. It's, mm-hmm. it's like it's, it's usually pretty embarrassing when you see that. And I Agreed. was more interested in the in the young person who was struggling to find out who they were with all these ambitions and, and in a society that's telling you no you can't do that you okay just... so is this a love letter to Marcy and to fellow Smiths fans or this obviously for this movie to succeed on the level that I'm sure you want it to it needs to speak to people who maybe don't care about Marcy or have never even heard of Marcy yeah, that's what we've what... tried to do that's what there's people to decide how successful it's been it's very much very much feels like a coming of age story that anybody could watch mm-hmm. we did intend to set out to do that and yeah there's enough in there for Morrissey and Smiths fans and yet it is a, a, a lot of a love letter to Morrissey and Manchester. Um, but we did, you know, we had ambitions to try and elevate it because we felt, you know, that we don't, we don't, why limit, as big as our global audience is for the film. Yeah. Why limit it? Why, why not try and push it a little bit further? Of course. What do you feel like this movie has to say to people who are, say, indifferent to Morrissey? Well, I think it's, I think it's a film that anybody who's ever had any ambition to do anything with their lives... Um, and, and doesn't feel like they belong in a in a box or a, a society or an environment or a family or whatever. It, it's, it's trying to say, you know, how do you get through that? How do you survive? You know, you, you feel like you're drowning in this world you don't belong in. And like any drowning person, you cling at things. And Morrissey was books and music, but it was also about strong women. Morrissey was, you know, surrounded by incredibly strong females, uh, including you know his mother and Linda Sterling. Um, and so I think it. it, it it touches upon those things. It touches upon you know his depression about you know it touches upon you know which is a mental illness and I think it you know, it addresses those issues. And I also think it's in in a sense um, much like the states we've been through a tumultuous last twelve months politically. I've noticed that yeah yeah. So and uh, what was it? What's interesting for me is that and this was never the intention. It's just it's become weirdly reflective of the of a, of that period where we've set the film. Is that that was a period where the UK had only just shaken off the shackles of Victorian England and joined the European Union, and was struggling to find its identity. And the youth was trying to grab hold of something, and it was sort of weirdly punk movement was a weirdly defiant movement. And I'm sorry, that, to interrupt. I feel like there actually are very explicit parallels politically between the two countries because, in in certain ways, that I don't think Americans are always point out. The Trump thing is a recall in a funhouse mirror sort of way to the Reagan era. Mm -hmm. And I feel I have the impression that the forces behind Brexit have a certain Thatcherite flavor to them. Yeah, I think so. And I think with Brexit, it's a whole generation of young people that are going to be affected. Once they finally get through the negotiations, if, if they ever get through yeah. them, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's going to be the young people that feel the impact of it for a generation. And much like the period of the 70s when my film set, it's the, the young people just decided to get grab hold of that opportunity. And Morrissey was one of those young people, and he actually said, you know, England is mine and it owes me a living. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, that's what the young people of my country are going to have to do. And I suppose in that way, the film can show you that Ultimately, it's going to be down to you to, to, to make something of your life. I always assumed that that lyric um, from Still Ill was a joke, was tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, possibly. But England is mine, it owes me a living. Now would be we know. Making fun of somebody who had the attitude that I'm, I'm English, therefore I just... I yeah, get, but there's a certain defiance to it as well, isn't Yeah, oh, sure, yeah. yeah. So, and that's what, that's what we've taken from it, that... Um, you know, it starts with I decree today that life is simply taken and not given. England is mine, and mm-hmm. that's what we thought. That's a real great attitude. So it's like grab something. Mm-hmm. This oh, this country owes me something. Let me just 
yeah, it could be tongue in cheek, but I also think it could be read the other way, just like go out and do something. Don't rely on other people. Do you feel like you've gotten, well, obviously you've gotten more insight into your own personal understanding of Marcy making a movie about him, but do you feel like, like I feel like there's a certain unknowability about Marcy and it's a, it's a critical part of his appeal is that he lays it all out there and he desperately wants to tell you all the intimate details of his feelings and stuff. So in a certain sense, you know him as well as you've known any performer or lyricist or singer but there's always that last little bit that you at least maybe maybe i'm just missing something and it's obvious and i'm just not clever enough to figure it out but i feel like there is an essential unknowability about morrissey that's central to his appeal do you feel like you've you've unlocked any secrets you can share with other morrissey fans who haven't devoted a couple years of their life to him no, no, I think I think you're right. I think that's there's, there is a central mystery to him, and why I didn't, I never wanted to try and explain it. If I'm right. honest with you, you know, you can, there's things that we can dance around, and there are things that I think that there's a universality to the story. Um, and what I did find that was interesting is all the things that we now know about Morrissey were there from very early on. You know, when we've got hold of the pen pal letters that he used to write to people. And the early, you know, the re- reviews he used to do in the enemy and the letters he used to write to the enemy. Mm-hmm. You for get for real... people who don't know, right? He was he was a really really avid yeah. fan. You'd have to say because he wrote terrible reviews of things he hated and wrote love letters to things that he loved. And did he write a book about the New York Dolls? He did and James Dean and and all the wit is there and all the acerbic sense of humor is there. And um, so I think and that was that was surprising that it was there from so early. Um, but I agree. I think there was there is an unknowability about him that I quite like that and that's I mean if you you see the final image of the film which it's on the poster the, the poster is intentionally meant to, you know yes we can see that that's Morrissey behind the, the door but the image is slightly skewed and you can't once that door opens Stephen's no more and will we ever actually be able to know who Morrissey is and that, there's always that degree of separation and that's what we've tried to reflect in the film my wife has an interesting uh, if somewhat blunt theory it's it's funny because i grew up around people you know you surround yourself with people who have similar similar dispositions and similar tastes so it was just sort of taken for granted some people like marcy more than other people but he's he's awesome revere this guy and then my wife comes along and she'd never listened to anything like him and i make it clear to her that he's fairly important to me so she gives a good hard look at the first video that i show her which was a live performance and she said and this is not the only performer i enjoy who she said this about she immediately says oh he's autistic (laughs) <laughs> really and okay. I'm like and the first thing he goes no 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 you don't get and I go oh well come to think of it if you're looking for a silver bullet that explains lots and lots of things about lots and lots of different rock and roll people mm-hmm. Lou Reed comes to mind mm-hmm. of people who just have this enigmatic they never quite give up the secret Mike Patton of Faith No More is another person she goes oh well, he, yeah, I get it he's autistic and she was not saying it to defame these people in yeah. any way it was just a, that was that she saw she called it as she saw it do you think it's possible Marcy is just a little bit on the spectrum no, good lord I was asking my medical opinion on something I don't have no idea but I, there's, you could almost argue that we're all somewhere on the spectrum I mm-hmm. guess maybe him a little bit more than some other people <laughs> I don't know I, I've, I've never really thought about it if I'm honest with you uh-huh. I've never, I've, never I, I, I've never seen it that way I don't think so. No, I've just seen him as what I've liked about him is his absolutely unwillingness to bend and compromise and stay true to what he believes in. Whether that you know whether we agree with it or not, Morris is going to say what he thinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it affects his career or not, Morris is going to say what he thinks. What and do you I think? I think that is incredibly unique in a society where artists are so man managed and stage managed and don't say anything. Right, it might get you into trouble because it's going to affect sales. Morris just doesn't give care i was going to swear then you can go right ahead can, okay well yeah, yeah. He, he just doesn't care mm-hmm. and and that 
whether you, whether you agree with what he says or not, right. I think it's quite admirable that he takes such risks with his own career. Sure. There are um, a number of people, including very devout Morrissey fans, who wish at this point in time that he would just shut up. What do you think about um, the most recent round of... I guess, I I guess, he's always been anti... I don't want to say he's anti-immigrant. He's always been very pro the traditional English identity and is not afraid to express his distaste for things that threaten that. Mm. I mean, unfortunately, you can only use words that have an ugly tinge to them to discuss mm. what he's really saying, which is things that might dilute the traditional English character. I don't see any other way that you can characterize what he has said. Or, or do you disagree? I don't know. I, 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 you know, it's a quite a political hot potato, isn't it? Um, I don't see anyone who cites James Baldwin as an influence or the Cats or cites... Um, listen to all those girl groups like the Cookies and the Runettes could in any way be racist. Uh, I just don't see it. I think maybe what happens is that you know there's an ambiguity of language that Morris uses on records, which probably maybe comes out when he talks, which invites trouble. Well, I don't think, again, it's a very Trumpian sort of racism where I, I feel like <clears throat> and I have no idea what's in Donald Trump's heart or mind, um, but that I don't think Donald Trump has any issue with with Mexicans or, or Mexico. He just is doesn't it, it has an issue with the role that they play in America. Mm. So whatever Mexico Mexico is a great fine country. You guys are awesome. Do your thing. And I feel like Marcy might well say the same thing, which mm. is that like um, I can't think of the specific. Like Bengalian platforms, you know, mm. is a song that attracted a lot of attention. Like when you're in your country doing your thing, that's great. And I celebrate that. And I might even visit you on vacation, but don't come and change what my country is. Yeah. But again, I think there's an ambiguity in that lyric. Again, I've always felt that that could be read two ways, you know, I mean, because, you know, it's almost, I've often felt with that, that lyric. It's, yeah, I can see how people could be perceived that it was racist, but it, so it could also be perceived like, you know, why would anyone come to the UK? Because it is tough for anybody. You know, that, that, I, that I often think sometimes when I, you know, I've grown up in the UK and I just think, I just want to get out. It's hard enough yeah, when you're it, from here is essentially the lyric. Yeah, that's what he says, yeah. But and you just think, you know, go somewhere else just because it's better than here. You know, don't you understand that it's really, it's really difficult in the UK? And I don't, I, that's, you know, so it could be read that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the song that well. I only know that lyric. So I'm spe- you know, it's, it's wasn't a great song, was it not? <laughs> uh, Kill Uncle it always kind of left me cold. Was it? On, I thought it was on the first album, Viva Hate. Yeah, it's on Viva Hate. It's on Viva. Also yeah. left me. I'm, I'm, I'm a bona drag, your arsenal, Vox Hall, okay, and that's yeah. all I need, kind of yeah. guy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I just don't. I've never ever seen him as. I've seen him as a provocateur, maybe, mm-hmm. and a contrarian, which he is. But I've never ever seen him as racist. You know what I mean? And like all provocateurs and contrarians, he's quite happy to kick kick a hornet's nest sometimes. I think the but, only thing that he hates, and again, this is another thing that my wife pointed out to me, and I think she's quite right about this: is he has this um, intense, intense, um, almost defining aversion to people that he perceives as bullies. 
and and she made the point that I'm sure he loves animals, and I'm sure he's aware that um, the um, the global livestock drives up uh, the emissions that are ruining our environment and stuff like that. Yeah. But again, she made the point. The reason why he's so hung up on the animal thing is because he sees them as these poor, defenseless creatures, mm. and these mean, ugly men with their machines mm. come in and murder these pure spirits, mm-hmm. and that is the fundamental basis of his vegetarianism, which mm. is obviously a huge element of who he has been over the years and that's just an extension of you can tie that into all the other lyrics that aren't about Mita's murder mm-hmm. which is um, uh, leave the wallflowers alone mm-hmm. it's interesting that you say that I was talking to my friend doing a name job Toby Kebble the actor yesterday and talking about people in LA with their dogs that they project themselves onto their dogs yeah. and maybe, there, maybe there's something in that I don't there's know. not a London equivalent to that Probably, in English? Probably, but I don't spend that much time in London. Uh-huh. Um, it's out of control. And, 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 you know, there's a really weird thing in the UK about dogs. It's like they're not, you know, they let children anywhere, but they don't let dogs anywhere. You know, they're Good like, for them. Yeah, but I, in the, what I love is I'm a big dog lover, so it's what I like about LA is that they're allowed everywhere, it seems to me, and especially in Europe as well. I've signed restaurants in France next to a dog. I, I'd love that. Really? I'd have the children thrown out, personally. Well, then you would fit right in here because I think there are quite a few restaurants that have that explicit policy. Do they? Um, there, there are definitely restaurants where children are not allowed. I don't know if those do allow dogs, although anybody can bring their dog anywhere as long as they get a piece of paper that they need their dog to be there. Yeah, Apparently, I can't get a piece of paper that says I need my son to be with me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's actually to be fair. I'm not being fair. It's, it's maybe not the children's fault. It's the parenting sometimes. I despair. Of course. Of course yeah. it is. Yeah. No, children can be monstrous. The problem is um, the thing... Uh, it was a whole separate conversation, but every child is miserable sometimes, and we all did it. And mm. to a certain extent, if the parent is making – like the, the the airplane is the classic example. As long as the parent is making an honest effort to yeah. to, to you know mediate it, mm. we all did it, and somebody hated us 25, 30 years ago, and now it's our turn to hate this kid. I'm not sure I did it. Not with my dad. I would never have been allowed. Yeah, I think I was more unintentional. I just remember vomiting one time oh, well, for the entire duration of a flight from New Jersey to, to Florida. Um, the last thing, I, 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 we've already touched on this, but to wrap things up, I feel like in the 1980s, it was a classic era of iconic, thoughtful, literate front people. Um, there was Morrissey. And there was Michael Stipe and there was Robert Smith. And I don't know if you'd throw like Susie Sue in there, but why not? And I feel like I don't think anybody talks about Michael Stipe anymore. I doubt they did a whole lot in England to begin with. But here, I mean, R.E.M., they're Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. And that's yeah, I was great. Very much, I was very aware of R.E.M. very early on. Yeah, But I feel like above all of them, Morrissey really endures. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts as to why that might be? Um. Well, he's an archetype, isn't he? You can't immediately when you see him beyond the Elvis Billy Fury haircut, you couldn't really identify where this came from. Um, no pop star before had taken literature and poetry and the reference points, the visual reference points, and things like the sleeves, for example, and being very, very northern and champion. No one had ever really the done record that. sleeves, yeah, the record yeah. sleeves. No one had ever really done that before and coalesced it into something completely unique. And the voice, no one ever really sounded like that before. And you can't be like Morrissey. You can't, you know, Liam Gallagher's a, to me a watered down version of Ian Brown, who's a watered down version of yes. Mick Jagger. So there's this simulacra going on of like a photocopy of a photo. Whereas Morrissey, there's just, you can't be like Morrissey. Right. So it's in that sense, why he enjoys it is because he's an archetype. Um, 
And he's just one of the greatest lyricists ever. Right. I think you're right. Well, thank you very much, Mark Gill. And congratulations on um, getting the movie made. And um, and best of luck with uh, the movie here in the U.S. It's in theaters this weekend. It is called England is Mine. 